0: So when we speak about the just transition, we do need to acknowledge that Shetland, while it produces oil and gas and, and energy for the country, it still has one of the highest levels of fuel poverty.
1: That was Shetland Island Council leader Stephen Coots. We'll hear more from him later in the show. Hello and welcome to The Stushy, the Scottish politics podcast from DC Thompson that helps you be better briefed. I'm Andy Phillip, and on this episode I'll be joined by my political reporting comrade Adele Merson and Derek Healy to examine and explain the last week in Scottish politics. But first, a summary of the week's biggest national and international politics stories, compiled and read by Alex Watson.
2: Talks between the UK and the EU on post-Brexit arrangements for Northern Ireland continue, despite the resignation of the DUP First Minister. Irish Foreign Affairs Minister Simon Coveney admitted that the resignation of Paul Given on Thursday was very unwelcome and means politics in the region cannot now function as required. The resignation also automatically removed Sinn Féin Deputy First Minister Michelle O'Neill from her position. Families face significant bill rises from April and higher expenses for many years to come to pay off the price of the Chancellor's efforts to tackle the cost of living crisis. Analysis by the Resolution Foundation of energy regulator Ofgem's price cap change found that the poorest fifth of households are still set to experience a major rise in energy costs. And the UK government must urgently develop a new motoring tax to address the decline in revenue, say MPs, as drivers switch to electric cars. A report by the Transport Select Committee stated there is likely to be zero revenue from existing motoring taxation by 2040.
1: Thanks, Alex. Let's turn our attention now to what's been happening closer to home. It's been a sobering week for the government. After all those parties, I'm talking about a cost of living crisis. Chancellor Rishi Sunak might have tried to sugarcoat it with the promise of some mitigations, but there's no getting around it. Household bills are about to go up. Tax rises are on the cards and rural Scotland in particular is about to get a financial whacking. We'll turn to the details on that and how it's likely to affect people a little later, but first we're going to throw it all a bit further forward. While gas bills are going up, we're also still grappling with the long-term reality of a shift from fossil fuels. Nowhere is this going to be felt as keenly as the northeast of Scotland and Shetland. It's about 50 years since oil started flowing to the Northern Isles and it's done them well. The Island Authority has a problem though, what to do next? How will those jobs be replaced and how can the Scottish Government and UK Government help? I caught up with Shetland Island Council Leader Stephen Coutts this week to hear a bit about their plans to turn the problem into an opportunity. He was in Holyrood to meet ministers. I began by asking him if the islands are prepared for the end of the oil era.
0: It's a plan full of opportunities.
1: Shetland has historically
0: played a central role in the oil and gas industry for both Scotland and the UK. We do acknowledge that we do need to transition um, to net zero I think one of the benefits of Shetland is our natural resources, particularly our wind regime. So I think the opportunities are out there. We've got a thousand jobs that are reliant on oil and gas. So what we need to ensure is that there's a, a just transition. We need to see the, the skills, opportunities being developed in this new sphere. The Opportunities are there and we're keen to engage with both the Scottish and the UK
1: government to make them a reality there's a lot of um jargon that gets attached to the to the to the shift there's net zero there's just transition how well understood do you think those terms are among the people who live and work in shetland do they do people realize what's happening
0: i think they do i think we've been an energy producer for a, a long period of time i think there's a recognition that we must learn from how oil and gas came to be in shetland and some of the missed opportunities so when we speak about the just transition we do need to acknowledge that shetland While it produces oil and gas and and energy for the country, it still has one of the highest levels of fuel poverty in the country. So that's part of the just transition that we need to to adapt to. Uh, We need to see supply chain opportunities developed and we need to see a difference for the householders in Shetland as well. Well, there is a lot of of, of charging out there, but clearly this has to be fair um, from a, a community perspective, a social perspective and an environmental perspective.
1: In your discussions with the Scottish and UK governments, do you get the sense from one or both or neither that they are that Shetland is on their radar?
0: Our job is to make sure that Shetland is on the radar. I think we are presenting the opportunities um, that are there. Um, I think we do need to acknowledge that there has to be um, support. Some of that is is financial support. Some of that is is challenging the status quo in terms of how electricity pricing, for example, works. So I think we need to see that that fairness. Um, We can't have a situation where we transition into net zero, produce um, green energy, whether that be electric or hydrogen, and still see the Shetland community paying
1: the highest levels of electricity costs in the country. In the in the, the blueprint there for for the years ahead, um, it mentions a sort of a, a buy-in for, for Shetland, um, uh, a, something tangible that people who live and work in the islands will 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 see from all of this. Um, do you think that despite all the energy coming in there, and as you mentioned, fuel poverty, uh, what what are Shetlanders getting back in return, and what do they need to get back in return?
0: I think. The development of onshore wind has, it's fair to say, created tensions in the Shetland community because there is consented projects that are underway at the moment where the community are not seeing that immediate impact at the household level. So that's the the conversations that do need to be had. I think moving forward in terms of how we use our energy in Shetland as well, I think there's opportunities around decarbonising our ferry fleet as well. I think that's going to be particularly um, challenging going forward for a local authority to do alone. We're a very small local authority and we very much need the support of, of central government to
1: deliver on on that aspirations. Uh, when you talk about central government and islands, um, a lot of attention is put on things like Kalmak, um, the, the Western Isles, the, the huge problems that people have had getting new ferries built, there's um, a new transport um, paper come out as well which mentions fixed links, bridges, tunnels to to closer islands. Again Shetland um, has its own problems, it's much further, the ferry links are more uh, important and you don't have all the the bridges and tunnels that perhaps you would want. What does the government have to do to fix that big problem, the transport problem?
0: I think there needs to be firstly an acknowledgement that Strategic transport investment has to cover the whole of Scotland. I think it's particularly disappointing to see STPR2 being relatively silent um, on Shetland.
1: STPR2 being the the new strategic look at transport for the future in, in Scotland.
0: Exactly. Um, so it was silent um, in, in in Shetland. So I think we've got real strategic opportunities. Um, around development of our aquaculture industry, oil and gas, and particularly opportunities around the space industry in UNST and and the impact that will have on Shetland. Now, Unst is an island that relies on a a ferry um, at the moment. As a council, we run our ferry fleet and we do it very efficiently. However, we need significant investment going forward and that has to be with um, national government support. So to see... uh, other areas of Scotland been reflected in the STPR too, and us not was particularly disappointing. As I say, we run our service very efficiently, but we do need strategic investment for nationally significant projects
1: in Shetland. You talked about fuel poverty earlier and underpinning this whole thing, whether you've got the best transport, whether you've got all the sources of energy coming in and um, through Shetland. If people go home to a house that they can't afford to heat, um what what do people then make of it? What do they think? Well what was what's the point of all this when you know the electricity's staying on in Edinburgh or London or wherever. How how do you get that buy in?
0: I think the community has been very supportive of our aspirations as a as a council. I think the Energy market and, and and some of the regulation around that is just quite clearly not fit for purpose as we transition to net zero and see renewable generation happening around Shetland. So the community um, is supportive um, of our aspirations. So we just need to ensure that that happens outside Shetland because we do have to acknowledge that these decisions are made uh, outside Shetland, which again is a, is
1: a challenge for us. What what about that? What are the big asks then? You you. Um something tangible, uh, tax relief, um, some sort of grants uh, from, from the UK or Scottish governments, how, how does that work? How, how would it work in practice to make this a reality? Again, I
0: think there's opportunities around there and that's what we're particularly keen to engage on. I think there's um, opportunities in terms of, as you say, grant, um, production uh, provision of free energy. Um, again, is another option that could be explored, particularly in the context of this energy being green, um, energy. I can understand um, reservations around that with um, traditional fossil fuel industry. So I think there is options, but we're, we really need to have that proper conversations with governments.
1: So the, the proposal could be something like, uh, you know, you've got X number of wind turbines um, covering the landscape in, in a particular island or community. Give the local community a lot more um Free energy, something like that, to 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 reduce their bills and see the benefits.
0: That that's one of the opportunities that we'd be very keen to explore, and and get the support of the community. Again, the community um, is is paying the highest rate um, for their electricity, and that is just not um, a position that's that's fair
1: or equitable. When you're talking to the to the governments, have you found much in the way of um, optimism or willingness to listen from the UK government?
0: We've had positive engagement with the UK um, government. Again, we've been very deliberate. This is about presenting um, opportunities out there. We do acknowledge that there's there's challenges, but we've had a, a receptive audience so far.
1: How about the Scottish government? Do they understand? I mean, you you mentioned yeah. the transport problems, and and that's clearly something that you'd be taking up with them. But how how else do how do you feel the attitude is from? from the Scottish government at
0: the moment? I think in recognition of some of the areas that are devolved to Scotland and, and transport being, being one of them, I think it has been disappointing the level of engagement that, that we've got. Uh, again, we look at other um, areas of Scotland and don't see that, um, that fairness. Um, as I say, I think we do provide internal transport very efficiently, but we are a small local council and we need that support. It,
1: it needs to be fair. The, the SNP have uh, long lamented the lack of a, a Scottish oil fund that um, you know the country could have drawn on in a way that perhaps Norway has. Shetland um, did have a, a form of a, an oil fund, um, we're we're fifty years or thereabouts on from 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 oil becoming a, a feature. Are you confident that you've benefited all you can do from the the money that's flown in? Uh, and do you think the next 50 years are going to be as, as useful from renewables?
0: Looking back at the, the deal that was done in an Act of Parliament in, in the UK in the 70s, the Shetland County Council Act, I think Shetland has, has benefited particularly well from the oil and gas um, industry. Um, that has enabled us to, as a council and separately as a charitable trust, to build up a, a fund that's available to the to the benefit of the Shetland community. So that, um, And that continues to generate income for us as a council um, that helps um, contribute to the, the running costs of the council. Um, moving forward, I think um, there's opportunities there, but then it goes back to the, the recognition that this activity, nationally important activities, will be happening on and around Shetland, and we do need to see that continuing benefit um, to the Shetland community.
1: Uh, That was Stephen Kutz there, the leader of Shetland Islands Council. Fair to say he sounded like a glass half-full sort of man when it comes to all the opportunities, but a critical look maybe shows there's still plenty of obstacles in the way. Shetland's peak oil was about 1 million barrels a day through Sol Vaux. It's about 100,000 now and it'll be zero in the future. So the future involves wind on land and offshore, tide and potentially scaling up things like hydrogen. Adele, you were listening to that chat there, and you've been looking at the politics of the energy shift um, a lot recently. I wonder what you made of his comments set against the backdrop of this current government, the so-called just transition, um, and how how jobs might get found in the future.
3: Yeah, as you say, it was he was a lot more positive, I guess, than, than some people that I've interviewed around this. And interesting, he said, he, he I think he said that there was a good sort of understanding of of the just transition, and uh, I think that's kind of uh, certainly. Being in, in Aberdeen in the northeast, uh, that's what I think could actually be improved is 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 bringing it from that sort of government level where you're hearing about the strategies and the policies and actually explaining to people on the ground who are in those jobs now how you know what their kind of future looks like, what what, what industries they could start to go into, and I think that's that's sort of the we're in this strange situation now where we're waiting for this. We're waiting for a lot of information. We're waiting for information on the just transition cash. How will that be spent? What kind of projects will that support? And a sort of wider plan around the just transition from a Scottish government level. And I think that's going to be published in the spring. So it, f- it feels a little bit like um, you know we've heard we've heard the words and the policies, and and what everyone probably wants now is to see see that investment coming forward and see that sort of a tangible plan yeah. for 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 what happens to their futures their livelihoods and careers.
1: Yeah it seems suggested that there's a more open door with the UK government from his point of view. You didn't seem particularly happy about the Scottish government when it comes to the more devolved areas like transport um, at Holyrood. So away away from the energy in particular there there is a bit more to this puzzle I suppose. Derek you've been been looking a lot at transport recently more widely across the country and how Scotland or even the UK is, is, is connected. Transport transport links uh, on Shetland and to the mainland is clearly a problem. Um, he, he told me as well um, after that that he was he often looked a bit jealously towards the Faroe Islands and, and Norway, where there's fixed links all over the place. And does he have a point about the lack of transport connection commitments coming from the
4: Scottish government? Well, I think it's interesting because I mean from that interview, he was obviously kind of talking about this being a, a sort of time of transition, but also a time of opportunity and being quite disappointed with the response of the Scottish Government um, to those kind of opportunities, being disappointed with what he's hearing back. And I think in a lot of ways it does have a parallel with a story that hopefully we, some career readers will be familiar with, which is the one we've been covering on um, a kind of the, the campaign to get a direct ferry link between Resyth and Europe re-established. Um, that's been a big kind of ongoing story for us, and it mirrors a lot of those same kind of themes. Um, there has been a disappointment at The response from the Scottish Government who have said on that 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 anything like that would need to be done on a commercial basis. Um, The transition in this case is is a transition not from oil and gas, but from uh, a post-Brexit economy and what kind of opportunities would be there. We've seen in recent weeks a, a shift from the campaigners and the local politicians involved in this. To look to the UK government for some extra support or to try and break down some of those barriers to trying to make this happen. Um, And I think there's that that same kind of frustration, that same kind of feeling that, you know, yes, things are changing, but there's opportunities there and they need to be seized upon. Uh, And I think it's a frustration about Mm -hmm. some some of the kind of blockages that have been in the way of that. Yeah, I mean, while we're talking about energy and transport
1: and, and and all the very, very expensive changes and commitments that are being made, I mean, we, we obviously have to look at, at what's going on right now um, as we're speaking, which is the sort of fallout from the energy price cap lift, the cost of living crisis, all these other things that governments North and South are trying to deal with. Um, so how, how does this all fit into what we're talking about? I mean, Chancellor Rishi Sunak was in the Commons on Thursday um, he put a bit more detail on the off-gen price cap, how it will uh, come down the road to us, and what he might do to mitigate it. And you were listening to that too, Derek. I mean, how, how's how's that
4: going to work, um, and what's going to soften the blow there? Well, we've heard that there's going to be some some mitigations put in place to try and to try and help shield people from the the biggest shocks of this. Um, I think there's been a lot of criticism involved in this. I mean, I think a lot of people have pointed to the. Promises made by the Prime Minister back in 2016 about there being lower energy bills coming down the line after Brexit. I think some of that's fair because, let's face it, a lot of people were saying at the time that those promises would never really materialise. But you have to look at this as a sort of of global issue. Governments around the world are going to have to tackle this. And I think really our own governments, whether that's the UK government and the Scottish government... They're going to be judged really on how they mitigate against these global pressures, and that's a little bit of what we saw this week. Mm. Um, I think for comparison, France have limited their price rises to 4%, and the UK we're looking at 54%. Uh, I think Norway is another example of a country that's, um, that appears to be going further to protect people in terms of those increases in costs. There were warnings, I think, at the end of last year that by failing to allow some of those increases to to go through that more uk energy companies could be put at risk so it's not it's not just a kind of black and white judgment um the uk has taken some of those same kind of steps that we've seen taken uh, in norway and taken in germany where they're going to try and put kind of cash back in people's pockets whether it's through um kind of giving some money back on council tax or by trying to stretch out that increase as well um and obviously in scotland that will be that'll be going through as well that'll go through the Scottish government but I think the real question at the end of this will be whether they've done enough really to try and protect people from those increases and um, my prediction would be that it's probably going to barely scratch the surface to be honest. Yeah well I mean Adele you were looking at too the the um, the
1: mitigation part and the the focus is on the UK government but the, the ball is also in now in the court at Holyrood um, what, what, what can we say about how the money that's coming from the Westminster decisions is, is coming to Edinburgh for, I mean, who knows what. How is it? How, how can the money offset any of this and is it likely to cause any any ripple?
3: It, yeah, it does get a bit complex. So yesterday's announcement, uh, Rishi Sunak announced, and this counts for all households, England, Wales, Scotland, they'll get a £200, it's been called a discount on bills from October, um, but it's a discount that has to be repaid. So some would call that a loan. <laughs> uh, so that's going to be repaid from people's bills and sort of equal forty pound instalments, and there's been criticism that well that's also not coming in until October, and this price cap is coming in in April, so that's you know one quite significant criticism. And then when it comes to the council tax rebate, so homes in England, if they're in bands A to D, will get a one hundred and fifty pound off their council tax bill. However, local taxation is a devolved issue and so as a result the Scottish government has been given 200 and around 290 million as a consequence of this policy and it's now that the ball's in their court as to how they spend that they, they've made it clear it will definitely be going on trying to mitigate the impacts of the rising energy prices but it's not quite clear how exactly it will work because a the situation with council tax is quite different in scotland we don't pay as much council tax in Scotland and also there's I think I can't remember off the top of my head I think it's about under half about 400,000 people don't pay any council tax because of the council tax reduction scheme Mm. so obviously if you're talking about a council tax rebate isn't going to really work in that sense so for those individuals so I think we're all kind of looking now at what the I think there'll be more clarity probably next week Mm. from the Scottish government in terms of how it will all practically unfold, but Michael Matheson, the uh, energy secretary, he was very. He, he he gave a statement yesterday, and and was very sort of critical of what had come forward so far. He doesn't think it goes far enough, and importantly, he was saying first and foremost, the biggest concern here is fuel poverty, because in Scotland, as as we covered uh, yesterday. The levels of fuel poverty are disproportionately higher in sort of highlands, uh, islands, rural Aberdeenshire, parts mm-hmm. of Murray, and so they were already in this situation where they were uh facing the highest levels of fuel poverty in the country, and now they have this uh additional burden to contend yeah. with. It's it's really quite a scary situation for a lot of people, yeah.
1: And, and just while you were talking there, I i sort of glanced upwards and at the the wee gas boiler that's gently humming away in front of me in this in this kitchen studio that I am currently sitting in and uh, it's giving me the fear. <laughs> I was just thinking as well, one other thing that we've not really talked about much is like over the past couple of years, everyone's been working from home. Yeah. Oh, a lot of people have, a lot of people haven't been able to, but um, I'm pretty sure everyone will have noticed how expensive it's been to work from home and have the heat on <laughs> um, in, in the depths of winter. Um, ah, yeah, so uh, this reminds me, I better get better back to the office as soon as possible. Um, it's making me feel slightly skint just thinking about this. Um, And if that isn't expensive enough, um, the Scottish government was bringing in some more regulations in the past few days, which could add potentially hundreds of pounds to our already stretched piggy banks. Um, I won't admit on record to the the shambolic nature of of my household finances and frankly shocking approach to safety. But luckily you were looking at this one as well, Adele. Um, Tell us about the smoke alarm saga, the law that isn't a law. (laughs)
3: <laughs> yeah, this vocal alarm saga kind of got into this about a month ago when I realised that this legislation was coming down the road and I had done nothing about it. Uh, that was last month. So I have my alarms in place now. So I actually did get an electrician to come and do mine because I. Basically, will pay money to make people <laughs> to, to, to get something happen easier. I, I didn't want to. I've got really high ceilings, and I didn't want to uh, get on a ladder and try and chateau and try and get them. No, I don't. I definitely don't overshadow a, a two bedroom flat. Um, <laughs> but now I have about a, an alarm in every room, almost. So that's fun. Yes. So the saga itself, it's basically every house in Scotland is required to have these new interlinked smoke alarms. And the policy comes off the back of the Grenfell Tower tragedy in 2017. And the idea is, obviously, if one alarm goes off in one room, I I can confirm it makes a real racket because every alarm goes off if one goes off. So the idea is that, obviously, you're saving more lives because people are hopefully getting up quicker if they're asleep or they're alerted to a fire quicker. The problems have been... There's been a lot of criticisms about the lack of awareness amongst the public. I mean, as I say, I'd forgotten all about it until last month, and I think it kind of crept up on many householders. There's also been problems with stock. Uh, I reported in the last last couple of days that electricians have been struggling to get stock and have in some cases been cancelling appointments because they don't actually have the alarms to go and fit them. Mm -hmm. There have also been problems with The cost of the appliances, the Scottish government... How much does it cost? Well, the Scottish government says it costs around £220 for the actual appliances. But obviously, if you do require an electrician, then you're looking at... (laughs) It depends on the electrician, but in my case, I was £285. But some people are reporting £300 plus. That's not cheap. No, obviously not in the context of... Everything that's going on just now, either, um, and there was a lot of uh, there was concern about what it would mean for house insurance for a while, where people mm. worried that their policies would become invalidated. That's that that seems to have been quashed now. I think uh, you, you are meant to check with your people have been urged to check with their individual insurers, but from what I've I've been able to find out, it seems that they will check if you have working fire alarms, but they won't necessarily check whether those are the new interlinked ones. So oh. it's been it's an interesting rollout of a policy. Yeah.
1: Derek, you want to admit to whether or not you're currently living in a house with up-to-scratch
4: the up to scratch safety features? I think I'll was no comment on that. I was hoping you weren't going to put me on the spot. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> ah, well, let's, I let's just it's it's say it's very fortunate that there's a policy of no penalties for no compliance at the moment. <laughs> Oh, I was just, I only asked you uh, because um, we
1: put a We Readers poll into the last story we did on this. And it was just a simple question Did you install new fire alarms by the February 1st deadline? Would you like to hazard a guess at how many of our
4: readers that took part in that have fitted the had, fire alarm? I hate to tell you that I looked at the poll just before this podcast started recording. Oh, um, so I know oh, ex- you're, you're, okay,
1: you're banned. Adele, <laughs> Adele, you can have a guess. How many? What's the proportion, percentage?
3: Oof. Uh,
1: have. Have you been cheating too? It's 30% have. Which means, uh, yeah, so 60% of the folk who took part in this, um, there was hundreds of folk who took part, um, haven't installed the fire alarms. And um, one in 10 had no idea about it. So, I mean, yeah, it just goes to show you that as far as regulations go, it's just as well. It's a soft soft start. Anyway, yeah, as I said, this is making me feel rather light of money talking about all this today Um, it's probably a good time to slip away and get raking around the back of the sofa and while I get away to that I'll just say thanks to Adele Merson and Derek Healy our guest Stephen Kutz, producer more McIntyre and of course you for listening we'll be back next week with more but until then and even after then pick up or log on to the Courier the Press and Journal and all of our news brands so that you can be better briefed cheerio
5: The Stushy is the politics podcast from DC Thompson Media, bringing together political journalists and commentators from all over the country so that you can be better briefed. Teams at The Courier, The Press and Journal, The Evening Telegraph, Evening Express and The Sunday Post work hard day and night, online and print and beyond to bring you careful reporting and analysis designed to help you understand the implications of what happens in Holyrood, in Westminster and in our communities. So you don't miss an episode, follow The Stushy today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you know folk like you who want to understand politics in Scotland a little better, suggest they tune into The Stushy or follow Stushy Scott on Twitter and Facebook. You can get a free month of unlimited access to The Courier or The Press and Journal too. Just go to the courier.co.uk slash subscribe or pressandjournal.co.uk slash subscribe or follow the links in the episode notes to be better briefed. Check the episode notes for details and terms.